you've got a Bible, grab it and make your way to uh, page 540, uh, one of the Bibles in, in, uh, in the pew in front of you, uh, Matthew 28. If you have your own uh, Bible uh, there, uh, and, um, while you're getting there, I am very uh, excited that uh, starting next week we will be back kind of into our bread and butter as a church, uh, getting back into a study through a book of scripture. It's been a number of weeks, probably the longest break we've ever had where we weren't in uh, a study. And it's been good. We, want, we, we talked through uh, spiritual disciplines, a series on that, um, starting in November and then have some Christmas. And then we've been talking kind of vision and process over the last several weeks. And that finishes up today. And so I'm super excited to jump back into a book next week. And we'll start the book of Luke next week. Uh, and we'll be in that for a while. Uh, we'll take some breaks, obviously, here and there, but I'm very much looking forward to uh, jumping into that next week. We'll be first four verses of Luke. But for this week, we're going to finish up the series we've been in, and so we need to do just a little bit of review um, so that we can close out this current series. And so, Providence exists, let's say this together, all right, to worship and enjoy God and lead others to do the same, all right? That's why we exist. We exist to do that. And what we've been talking about over the last four weeks is the process by which we go about trying to accomplish that. And that process is also on the screen. So let's say that out loud as well. We gather, grow, serve, and go. Okay, so we gather for worship. We grow in groups. We serve the church and the community. And we go to our neighbor's and to the nations. And so over the last several weeks, we've just been fleshing that out. And one of the things that we've really tried to hammer home uh, week after week after week is that none of this is like something revolutionary. None of this is something new. And so almost every single week, the first point of each sermon has been that, that whatever it is we're looking at all right, is expected. So like gather, we are expected to gather. Hebrews 10, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And all the epistles of the apostles, are, they're all gathering. They're expecting that those epistles would be read in public, that, that the word would be preached, that the word would be obeyed. It's an expectation of Scripture that we gather. And it's expected that we grow, that we're going to grow in Christ, that we're going to grow as a people, that we're going to grow particularly, particularly in groups. So we look at two, and you see them devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, all right, gathering together, and then they're also breaking bread in their homes. They're gathering, they're growing in groups. It's also expected that we would serve the church and the community. You see that in Acts 2. They gather big groups, they, they, they grow small groups, and they serve one another. They sell their things. They, they have all things in common. They serve the church. And the community. And so these things are just expected. Scripture expects. The, Jesus expects that we gather. He expects that we grow. He expects that as believers we serve. And he expects that we go to our neighbors and to the nations. Both of these. It's an expectation of this. And so if you look at Matthew 28, I mean, 
even right there, like it says, go and make disciples. But, but the connotation of, of go there, it, in, in Greek, it's a participle. And so it's as you are going. Like it's not even a command there. Jesus is just saying, I know that you're going to be going because I've been telling you this for three years. And if you've read the Bible, which for them at that time was just the Old Testament, it says it all over the place that we're to go to the nations with the good news of salvation that's in the Messiah. So I know you're going to be doing this. I know you're going to be going to make disciples of all nations going. Of all nations, all people groups, Panta ethne, all of them. It's expected. It's just expected that we're going to do this. And so I just want to keep camping out on that a little bit this morning. Just this expectation. It's nothing new. It's an expectation of Scripture and of Jesus and of the Christian life. It is expected that we, that you, go to your neighbors and to the nations with the gospel message. It's expected that we go across the street and across the world. We go across cultural boundaries, uh, language boundaries, we go across racial boundaries, we cross all boundaries, all right? We go. It's expected of you and me. Why is it? And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about the why. Why? Why we go? We're going to break it down like this in your notes. We go, number one, because Jesus is Lord. We go, number two, because Jesus is worthy. And we go, number three, because Jesus is Savior and people are lost. They don't believe in Jesus. And so let's just jump in. Number one, we go... Because Jesus is Lord. Look at Matthew 28, 5.32, right there with me, uh, starting in verse 16. That we read just a second. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now that's an encouraging word to me right there. Probably not one of the eleven that was doubting here, but of all the you know, d- disciples and followers of Jesus who were with him, even then there were some who doubted. And so I say this to people all the time, like, if you doubt, don't, don't doubt. You're going to doubt from time to time. And here's what I would say. Don't fear that. Chase it. If you'll chase it, you'll find there's an answer. And you'll grow in your faith. Don't fear doubts. Chase them. Okay? Chase them. So when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, as you're going, make disciples of all nations, panta ethne, all people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, name singular. And then he gives a Trinitarian definition, right? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, presence of the Lord, to the end of the age. 
Now, look closely. We're talking about we go because of the fact that Jesus is Lord. Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority on heaven and earth is mine. All of it. Not part of it. All of it's mine. It's been I have all authority. And so we go because Jesus is Lord. We go because Jesus has all authority on heaven and in earth. Which means that He's going to call people to Himself. And it means He's the boss. That He's in charge. That He calls the shots. And He says, go. And so we go. He's Lord. And I want to make sure we understand this idea, this idea of, of Lord. Like when someone becomes a follower of Christ, okay, they, they trust Jesus to be what makes them right with God the Father. What Jesus did for them, not what they do. They trust in what Jesus did through His life of perfection, His death of substitution, and His bodily resurrection. They trust in that to be what makes them right with God the Father when they when someone does that, when someone repents and believes the gospel, the common vernacular that we use for that is that they've received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And that's good. That's proper. That's right. But I think sometimes, okay, we, we don't overemphasize Savior because that is an impossibility. You can't overemphasize but we do underemphasize lordship. That we're not just receiving Jesus as Savior, we receive Him also as Lord. Like we need to recognize we have no rights before God. We have His promises that He's given to us, but we don't have any rights. We have no bargaining chips with Him. We can't be like, well, Lord, I'll do this if you do this. Any imaginary rights we thought we had have been already, I mean, they're not, they're imaginary, but we've laid them down. We submit, we surrender. He's Lord. He's your King. And so if you claim to be a believer, I'll just put it this way to you. You can't have Jesus as Savior and not Lord. That's an impossibility. Like I've had people tell me over the years, well, I, I've been a Christian since I was a child. I uh, accepted Jesus as my Savior when I was six, but it wasn't until I was like 23 that, that He really became Lord of my life. Well, you know what? Actually, you became a Christian when you are 23. Now, can you and should you grow? Absolutely. Uh, is your, are you going to understand? I came to faith at seven. Am I at seven? Did I understand everything there was about the gospel? No. So you're going to grow. You should grow. That's called sanctification, right? That should happen. And there are moments also uh, where, where e even in a moment, you, you're awakened to a new depth of the gospel. That's going to happen. But the idea of taking Jesus as Savior and not as Lord, it doesn't work that way. He's Lord and Savior. 
They go together. It's not like, well, I'll, I'll take his saving me from hell, but I still want to live my life my way. It doesn't work that way. So if you pay attention, um, we put those resources at the bottom of your sermon guide. And uh, not this week, but fairly often, you'll notice a lot of times that I, I'll put something down there by uh, Augustine, who was the Bishop of Hippo in the fourth century. Um, let, let me tell you just a little bit about Augustine. He was a brilliant, brilliant man. Um, after he became a believer, he wrote an autobiography called Confessions, which is uh, a long He also wrote a book called City of God, which was written in 410 after the fall of Rome. And people are saying, has God abandoned us? Rome has fallen. All this. So he writes this book and says, listen, there's a city uh, there are earthly cities and there's a heavenly city. And while we're concerned, and rightly so, about this earthly city, our primary citizenship is in the heavenly city, and that's what we need to be primarily concerned with. It would be a good read for most evangelicals today. All right, so Augustine, all right, he wrote those books, but, but before he came to Christ, before he came to Christ, um, when he was just beginning to dabble with, with the claims of Christ and with Christianity, just beginning to dabble with it just a little bit, he, he didn't get this lordship of Christ thing. When he was, this is before he ever became a Christ. It's just when he's starting to dabble with it just a little bit. So he, he, would, he would use the word Lord, but he would strip it of, his, of its meaning. And so this man, who had quite the... Um, out, I mean, he wasn't married quite the sinful uh, sexual appetite, prayed, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. That was his prayer. Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. This different, like trying, I want to be saved, but, but, but I don't want to live for you. But then one day, his testimony, one day late in the summer of 386, after spending months listening to Ambrose, who's another a uh, great saint of old, and I mean saint in the sense of a faithful believer, not in the sense of uh, the Catholic Church. After listening to him for months, Augustine's walking um, in a garden in Milan, and, and he hears a child singing, take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. And so he had a copy of the book of Romans with him, and so he grabbed the book of Romans, opened up, and it fell to Romans 13, verses 13 and 14, which say this, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. I love that those are grouped in with those other things. But, point, but, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, to gratify its desires. And in that moment, he repented and believed and was converted to Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's both. There's not an either or. And so uh, just be straight here. If you claim to be a believer and you look back on this day when you trusted Jesus as your Savior, but he's not Lord of your life. 
I'm not talking perfection. We're still going to stumble and fall and have to fall onto the mercies of Jesus. But if there's been no real change in your life, if there's no um, true submission to Christ, lordship of Christ in your life, then the truth, the hard truth, but the truth is very likely that you're not regenerate, that you're not saved, that you're not a believer. You may have prayed a prayer, you may have signed a card, but if there's no like, like grace-driven effort at living the life Jesus has commanded us to in His Word, okay? If you're not living with a bended, bowed knee in submission to Christ, you need to at least check your heart and check yourself. I mean, a whole lot of what has gone on, especially in the last half of the 20th century, was soft-peddling the gospel, just trying to get a decision and creating a whole mass of people who think they're saved and aren't. And that is the worst place you can be. And now, I don't want anybody who is a true believer to like start doubting their salvation. But if you think you're a believer and you're actually not, then yes, absolutely, I want to cause you to doubt your salvation because you're not saved. And heaven and hell hang in the balance. And so the lordship of Christ is not a trifling thing. It's not a secondary thing. It's salvation. It's bowing the knee in submission to Christ. He's Savior and Lord. Again, not talking perfectionism or legalism. I'm talking progress and lordship. That as believers, we should be, if you are a believer, if you claim to be a believer, you should be progressing ever so jaggedly maybe, but still there's an upward tick of Christ-likeness. There's an upward tick of godliness. There's an upward tick of growing in obedience to our Lord, our Master, our King, Jesus is Lord. And so it's expected that we are to go. Because he's Lord. And he said so. And so number one, go because Jesus is Lord. Number two, go because Jesus is worthy. Go because Jesus is worthy. I mean, we, we've already looked at it. He is Lord. He has authority, all authority in heaven and on earth, all of it. Okay, he's worthy. And so we go. Flip, flip over to Revelation chapter 5. It's on page 665 in your Bible, uh, the Pew Bible. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, take that one home with you as our gift. Okay? Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. We go because Jesus is worthy. Revelation 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you are slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders 
the voice of many angels, numbing, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, let it be. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is why we go. He's worthy of our worship. The whole point of going, the whole point of isn't isn't like to go. I know it's going to sound weird, but that's not the point. That's not the goal. Going isn't the goal. Worship is the goal. So we go because worship isn't happening. John Piper puts it like this. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Evangelism exists because worship doesn't. Going to our neighbors and the nations exists because worship doesn't. Like there's over 2 billion people on the face of the planet who've never heard the name of Jesus. Or Jesus or Yeshua. They've never heard the name Jesus. And there are over 5 billion people on the planet who've heard it, but don't worship Jesus as the Christ. So we go, because worship doesn't exist, and Jesus is worthy of worship. I mean, when you think about His power, and you think about His might, and you think about God's greatness, like every time in Scripture that you see an angel show up on the scene and appear to a human, what, what happens? What, 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 what is the first thing out of that angel's mouth? Don't be afraid. Why does he say that? Because they're flipping terrified. They're terrified. And so these angels, like when you look at Isaiah 6, and uh, cherubim and seraphim, and, and all these, these angels who are terrifying to us, just in their power and in their splendor, they themselves hide their faces in fear and reverence in the holiness and the glory of God. This is our triune God's might and power and glory and majesty and holiness. He's living. He's creator. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's uh, alpha and omega, beginning and the end, eternal, infinite, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, Majestic, glorious, holy Lord of hosts. This is who he is. And, 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 and even in his, like, he's in need of nothing. So even in his command to us to go, it's not because he like needs us to go. Well, thank goodness he's got me on, on his team because, man, I'm, I'm he doesn't need you. He doesn't call us to go because he needs us. He calls us to go because he loves us. Like, like God, we need to make sure we understand, God has never, ever, 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 ever been in heaven and 
wrung his hands in nervousness. He's never been nervous. He's never been worried. He's not in need of anything. Like You find no vision in Scripture that pictures God that He's like out plowing a field or mowing His grass or or, or, you know, paying taxes or, or holding a think tank because he doesn't know what to do or, or, or doing some kind of work. Heaven's not coming apart at the seams. God's never at wit's end. What we do find, the vision that we do find of God in heaven is that we see him sitting on a throne in complete control. And all is at peace. And he's in control. He knows what he's doing. He knows how this is going to go. There's nothing happening outside of his will. Even the hard things that we rack our brain. I don't see how this works with this. There's nothing that's happening outside of, of, of his will. He needs nothing. He's in complete control, like Isaiah 46 says this, verse 9, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God is sovereign over all things, is in need of nothing, and is worthy, worthy of our worship. And so we go. But not only do we go because God is sovereign, not only do we go because of, of like who God is, but also because of what He has done in, in saving us. Like if you're a, in saving you if you're a believer. Like sometimes we think that cultural boundaries are hard to cross, and there's some merit to that. There's some merit to that. Like in, in Kazakhstan, you better be able to stomach some horse. That's a cultural boundary. But you better be ready to stomach some horse. When they set that giant sausage in front of you, it looks like a rotten boa constrictor. You better be ready to eat it. Or hope. Pedro's like, y'all eat a bunch so it looks like I ate some. <laughs> All right. So there's cultural boundaries, but also not to terrify. They also make this just ridiculously awesome, like cook this stuff in a wok on steroids that's huge outside, fire going underneath, make some sort of like fried rice-like deliciousness. It's just ridiculous. So there's good things. That's not a cultural boundary. That's a blessing you get to cross into. But there are cultural boundaries and they're hard to cross. I, I, I get that. But do you know what the hardest boundary to cross is? The hardest boundary that there's ever been to cross? The biggest gap that there's ever been to cross? The gap between a sinful humanity and a holy God. And yet God, yet in the person of Christ, 
second person of the Trinity. Jesus bridged that gap. Jesus came to us, and likewise, we are to go in whatever boundaries that means we are to cross. And so we go because He's Lord, and we go because He's worthy of worship. Worthy as a lamb. He was slain. And deserves all honor and glory and power and majesty. And so number one, we go because He's Lord. Number two, we go because He's worthy. And number three, we go because He's Savior. And people are lost. He's Savior and people are lost. Not, and, and by lost, we mean like, they don't know Jesus. They don't believe in Him. They, they don't trust Him. He is not their Lord and Savior. And we need to make sure we get this and understand this. It's, and sometimes, like, just so common, lost, no, 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 it's just so common, but we don't understand it. We, we just keep it up here intellectually and never let it sink into our heart and into our gut. And do you get that people are lost and don't know Jesus? By the billions. Two billion who've never even heard the name. Five billion who don't trust Him as the Messiah. Like there's two billion who could travel for miles and miles and miles and miles and never find a Christian, a church, or a Bible. Unreached. Made in the image of God. Five billion made in the image of God who have heard of Him but don't trust. Like if, if you know Jesus, and if you know that like what He saved you from, and you know how worthy He is and deserving of all praise and, and glory and worship and honor, and you know the lostness of this world, this should break your heart. Because apart from Christ, man is cut off from God. Colossians 1, under the condemnation of God. Romans 5, enslaved to sin and in the snare of the devil. John 8, an object of God's wrath. Ephesians 2, verse 3. Destined to die forever in hell. A place of fiery agony. Mark 9. Conscious, eternal torment. Luke 16. Continual destruction. Second Thessalonians 1, where the smoke of sinners' torment goes up forever and ever, and there is no rest or night. Revelation 14. Do you get that? Do we get that in the words of Pastor Puritan Pastor Thomas Watson? Thus it is in hell that they would die, but they cannot. The wicked shall be always dying, but never dead. The smoke of the furnace ascends forever and ever. Oh, who can endure thus to be ever upon the rack? 
this word ever breaks the heart. George Whitfield used to preach with tears in his eyes of the torment of burning like a livid coal, not for an instant or a day, but for millions and millions of ages at the end of which people will realize that they are no closer to the end than when they began and there's no end for it. Hell is not a casual matter. I was listening to a pastor this week and he was just reminding what you know that whenever we sit there and we talk about man, we may say tonight after the Super Bowl, that was a hell of a game. It shows we have no idea what we're talking about. Hell's not a trifling matter. There's an eternal wrath awaiting before a holy God. Awaiting you if you're not a believer. Awaiting your parents if they're not believers. Awaiting your kids if they're not believers. Awaiting your friends and your co-workers, and your cousins, and your family, and everyone, if they're not believers. And that should wreck us. But Jesus is Savior. And He's come to save sinners. He's come to save sinners. He's, he's come and He's taken on our sinfulness and the sinfulness of the world, of all that He would call to Him. He's come and He's taken on sinfulness and He's bore the full penalty of God's wrath against that in the place of sinners. God poured all of His eternal wrath against sin out on Jesus in our place as our substitute so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be delivered, so that we can be set free and, and, and not, like, it's so much more than just wiped clean. It's not just that He wipes us clean, but He actually gives us His righteousness so that God doesn't see us just clean in Jesus. He sees us as righteous in Jesus because Jesus has given His righteousness to us. Second Corinthians 5.21, for, for God made Jesus to become sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The transaction has taken place that, that, that on the cross, God the Father treated Jesus as if He had lived your life and my life so that He could treat us as if we had lived Jesus' life. Jesus got what we deserve so we can get what He deserves. He took our sin. He gives us His righteousness. And that's what makes us clean before a holy God. But Romans 10, how will people know this if they've never heard? And how are they to hear unless someone tells them? And so go to your neighbors and to the nations with a heartbeat of Spurgeon, who said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. 
If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the, in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. And so we go across the street and across the world. We go to our neighbors and we go to the nations. And so let me just, one practical thing. Just, I want to touch one disconnect that happens in our brain. Like uh, on the 13th of December, I preached a whole sermon on evangelism that's got a lot of practical stuff. I encourage you to go back and listen to that again. But just one thing this morning, because I want to talk to our hearts primarily, and we'll have one application at the end. But this one disconnect, here, here at Providence, we give, we give, uh, we support financially a lot of different missions organizations. John talked about one this morning, the North American Mission Board, but uh, of every dollar that is given to Providence, 11 cents of that dollar goes automatically out the door. Like we, the, the church itself tithes. Okay? 11 cents goes automatically out the door to support missionary work all around the world. And so as a church, all right, you and I, we, we get and, and we accept and, and totally understand that our missionaries overseas okay, fundamentally are there to reach people with the gospel. And so when they take a job, whatever job it is that they get, whether it's as a teacher or as a businessman or a contractor or whatever it is, that's kind of a side thing that they do to help them make connections, uh, so in the hope of leading people to Christ. And so it's a tool that they use to, to make Christ known. We get that. We applaud that. We're all about it. But then the disconnect happens because here at home, we get amnesia about what we're applauding people to do overseas. And instead of having that same mindset, we reverse it and see that our fundamental... Like, our jobs are fundamentally about money and, and personal fulfillment and only secondarily at best do we see it as a tool to make Christ known. We got to rip that disconnect up, water it away, throw it away, and recognize that everything in our lives, like what are we here for? Everything in our life is to be used strategically for the advancement of the gospel, for worshiping and enjoying God and leading others to do the same. Leveraging our home and our vocation as a tool for the gospel. Every bit here as they do overseas. I mean, the nations have come here. They're at work. Your neighbors. Whether It's all the same. It's lostness. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is worthy. Jesus is Savior. And people are lost. So we've got to go to our neighbors and the nations. We've got to, we've got to go across the street and across the world. It's not an either or. It's a both and. Acts 1.8. Be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Those aren't steps. That's all at the same time. And so even right where you live. I mean, Acts 17 says that God has placed each of us in our location and times on purpose. What this means, and you can probably recite it with me if you've been at Providence for any length of time at all, is that you don't live where you live by accident. You don't work where you work by accident. You don't go to school where you go to school by accident. 
You don't shop where you shop, get your hair cut where you get your hair cut. By accident, all of these things are to be used, uh, are, are strategically, sovereignly, you're placed where you're placed by God to reach those around you in your sphere of influence with the gospel message. I've been saying this for eight years, almost weekly. And some of you are like, tell me about it. This is ridiculous. Every single week. Come on, Joe, get something new. Every week. I mean, I hear you up there preaching, and then you start, and I'm like, here it comes. You live where you live. You work where you work. You shop where you shop. On purpose, by God's design, to reach those people with the gospel. Joe, this is getting old. I'll make a deal with you. I will. Stop saying that when we all start living. Go to the neighbors and to the nations. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you came after me in Christ. That you sought me and bought me with Christ's redeeming blood. And I pray for those in here who think they're a believer and aren't. I pray that you would convict them today. And that today would be the day of salvation. I pray for those who are in here who aren't believers and know it. I pray they would feel your loving arms open to them, drawing you home, drawing them home. And they would receive. They would surrender. They would bend. They would bow in submission to your lordship and your saving grace. I pray for those of us who are in here who are believers. That we would be and get intentional about going to our neighbors and nations and making disciples. Not that I'll get to that someday when I'm not so busy. Not that I'll get to that someday when, when it works. But, but that, like, that's why we, we're here to worship and enjoy you. And lead others to do the same. We go because you're worthy. We go because you're Lord. We go because you're Savior and people are lost. So help us today, even in these next few moments, to commit to reach people we know don't know you with the gospel. And save them. You tell and you save. Save our parents. Save our children. Save our co-workers. Our friends. Save those who are in Thank you.